Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and he and I are recording the show on Sunday, October 4th, 2020. Am I hearing correctly, Drew? You know, swarms of earthquakes? Is Again, it, it's nice to have something to go with the fires. Yes. I, have there been earthquakes? I haven't felt anything for a couple of weeks, but... All right. I was just reading something about there were swarms of earthquakes out in Southern California, and I just figured plagues, locusts, it's going to be a full month for you guys. I mean, I saw a squirrel this morning. That's almost a swarm, but no, no earthquakes. <laughs> All right. I stand correct. So... <laughs> Busy week, animation-wise. I guess the proper place to start is the news about the Lion King sequel. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, the news is that Barry Jenkins, who created the Oscar-winning Moonlight and the Oscar-nominated If Beale Street Could Talk, is going Mm -hmm. to be working on a Lion King sequel. As soon as I wrote my story, I was contacted by Disney and said, can you refer to it as a follow-up, not a sequel? And the original write-up of the movie was that it was going to have this kind of Godfather 2-ish vibe where it was going to be the beginnings of Mufasa, but also continuing the story forward. So I have no idea what to think. I mean, I think Jenkins is a really exciting director, Mm -hmm. and people have been having a lot of fun on Twitter sort of putting the score to Moonlight against the opening of the Jon Favreau (laughs) (laughs) Lion King and stuff like that, which is is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. So I'm excited by the choice of filmmaker, but... Less excited about there being another photorealistic Lion King movie, I guess. That doesn't intrigue me quite as much as the notion of the the whole Godfather 2 thing, the slippy, slidey, move the story forward while we look at the, the background of Mufasa. I'm more excited to hear that that's the direction they're going as opposed to Lion King 2, Simba's Pride. What about Lion King 1.5? Or what about Lion Guard, Jim? I mean, there is just so much material they could take from <laughs> Please don't encourage them. <laughs> For those of us who remember how, you know, Godfather 3 turned out, it's just sort of... But though, interestingly enough, did you see that Coppola is is revisiting Godfather 3, that he's recutting it? Yeah, the... yeah, I'm excited about that. It's called, like, the Godfather Coda, the death of <gasps> Michael Corleone now, which is yeah. sort of interesting. I definitely want to see him make another run at it, but I just... Ugh. It's almost like 40, it's like over 45 minutes shorter, too. Let's face it, there's a lot of stuff they could cut. Yes. Anyway, moving on, we got news about Peter and Wendy, the very next live-action Disney reimagining of an animated film. David Lowry, who both you and I really enjoy his dragon. Yeah. So we're, we're kind of looking forward to what he does with Peter Pan, but... So we just got news about Tinkerbell. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, uh, Yara Shahidi, who mm-hmm. is from Blackish and mm-hmm. Grownish, mm-hmm. which I always get a kick out of Grownish, Jim, because her college campus is my old office building on the <laughs> Glen- on the Grand Central campus. So, oh my God! You know what? Half the reason I enjoy Blackish is how much of it is shot on the Disney lot. Whenever they're dropping the kids at school. It just seems like welcome back to the Burbank lot. So oh yeah, every every time you know, I want to go to the studio store. Up oh, nope, somebody's they're shooting Blackish over there. You know, gotta gotta go another time. Sorry, um, but yeah, she is like fabulous and totally brilliant. I remember somebody told me that uh, I think Barack Obama wrote her Yale letter of uh, recommendation. So oh yeah, you know, just a you know a slight 
little bump there, but she is going to be cast as Tinkerbell in this new Peter and Wendy movie, which is just so exciting. The coverage was really stupid because when I think the Hollywood Reporter put it up or Deadline, no, it was Deadline, Mm -hmm. they said, uh, let me get the actual phrasing of Mm it because it's so very, very bad. It says, in recent years, Disney has been open to any actor playing the role that the role was originally limited to Caucasian talent, making waves after they were talking about... um, the young lady who is playing Ariel in Little Mermaid. And so they're saying this is the first time this has been done, except with Little Mermaid, which was like a few weeks ago. So, um, yeah, yeah, this is what it says. This would mark the first time a person of color has filled the role that traditionally has featured a white actress and follows in the footsteps after Disney cast Halle Bailey to play Ariel in Little Mermaid. So uh, another top-notch report from Deadline. But yeah, it's it's very exciting news, and I can't wait to see what she does. She is, she's wonderful, and she was in this really great, like, sort of YA movie that Warner Brothers put out last year that nobody saw but was really great called The Sun is Also a Star. Yes, um, yes. Yeah. I don't know if you ever saw it, but it's really great. I'm sure it's on HBO by now, but it's it's really great, and... She's a great talent. So I'm I'm very excited about this movie. And yeah, I wish I wish David Lowry has a movie called The Green Knight that was supposed to come out this year that looks really cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, who knows if we'll ever see it, Jim. But uh... <laughs> speaking of which though, that if we were in a different time and there wasn't any COVID nineteen, we would be seeing Robert Zemeckis' take on the witches going out into the theaters, but that is no longer the case, right? Or... Yeah, it's coming out this month, Jim, on HBO mm-hmm. Max. Mm-hmm. Did you watch the trailer? I did. I did. And given that I'm a fan of the original film version of The Witches uh, from 1990, in fact, you know, it, it kind of holds a special place in my heart because it was something that was done by the Jim Henson Creature Shop, and it basically arrived in theaters in that same window of time when we lost Jim. Mm -hmm. And I just remember going to a theater and just thinking, look at what this guy was doing and what could potentially happen going forward. So it, it was kind of interesting, you know, having that version of the film have that place in my heart, see this new take on it. And... It does look intriguing. It does look fun. I mean, it's, it's got, at the very least, a killer cast. Yeah, I mean, I love the original, too. I'm also a huge <laughs> Nicholas Rogue fan. So to see him do something sort of like family-friendly and commercial is, and, and still maintain his sort of weirdness is always really mm-hmm. great. But mm-hmm. I expect that the Robert Zemeckis component will be a lot of fun. Like, I, I imagine there will be a lot of camera movements that go down to the mouse level. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the reason why we're bringing this up is because there's there's clearly a lot of performance capture stuff going on in animation and whatnot. Mm. And speaking of Blackish, did you see the screenplay credit on this thing? No, I did not. It is Robert Zemeckis, Kenya Barris, who created Blackish. Yes, yes, And Guillermo del Toro. Wow. If that is not a, you know, Mad Libs Hollywood. Holy uh, cow. Okay. Now yeah. you, you moved this from intrigue to now must see. Holy yes. cow. Okay. Yeah. But again, that comes out. Uh, October 22nd. Yeah. This month on, on HBO Max. Yeah. Meanwhile, again, as we pivot back to the world of theatrical, we got things slippy sliding around. We had the, the new Bond, No Time to Die, mm-hmm. went from its November release date to 
Uh, April 2nd. There we go. Yeah. Okay, because I, I wanted to, to say that Fast and Furious 9 had to react to that as well. So you, know, you have you know other films moving around the board. But you pointed out that with Bond vacating November, now it gets interesting, especially from an animation point of view. Yeah. Um, so now it looks like that, that weekend that Bond was supposed to dominate is going to be a showdown between Soul and The Croods 2. Now, at the time of this recording, Mm -hmm. my embargo has not broken on my Soul stuff, but it will be out this week. So next time we record, I will be able to talk about Soul and what I've seen from Soul. And I just talked to Pete Doctor the other day. So I'll have a lot of a lot of Soul stuff. But it's very interesting that they are keeping the the embargo this week and still claiming it's coming Mm -hmm. out theatrically. I still don't believe that, Jim. I think that this will be a... I don't think it'll be a Disney Plus premiere. I think it'll be more of a wide VOD and then go to Disney Plus in a few months. But I don't think it's happening. And I think we're going to get an announcement this week. I think that the embargo is going to break on the news right as they announce what's actually going to happen to Seoul. So that's my little conspiracy theory, Jim. I know we're, you know, I know we're taking the red pill right now, but, you know. (laughs) That, that's my theory. Okay, so that gives us something to look forward to with the next show. And speaking of the next show, folks, on our last episode of Fine Tuning, I talked at length about the production history of Animal Crackers. In the past week, the gentleman who actually set this project in motion, Scott Christian Sava, reached out to me. And we've been doing a bit of a back and forth. And Scott has agreed to come on the show to tell us the real story of what happened with Animal Crackers, which I always love when you look at the story second or third hand from other people in the production, you actually get the people in the front seat, which again is, is why Drew, again, are so much looking forward to hearing what Pete Doctor has to say about Soul or yes. what he's gone through you know, these past couple of months waiting yes. for Soul to finally make it out into theaters or video demand or whatever. Well, in regards to Animal Crackers, did you get the impression that Lions and Tigers loop-de-loop? That's really my my question. Oh, oh. I'm sorry, Scott. We will take this seriously. So, you know, <laughs> when you get here, we, we very much look forward to, uh, forward to hearing what actually went on with the protracted production of, of that animated feature. And speaking of protracted, I have been waiting on the loop in the third, the first... You know, just ever since the trailer dropped, what, last year? Yeah. Um, and so it's like, what, it's, when is it's this It's been painful, to... Jim. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, you came across, we finally do have information? Or? We do have information. It is coming to select theaters again. God knows where. Jim, I don't know if it's... Ha- it's probably not happening in your neck of the woods because you literally live in the neck of the woods. But October 18th and 21st, it's one of those Fathom events. Okay. And then it'll be on VOD by the end of the year, which is what I'm excited about, because I, I think you and I both, Jim, are going to watch this thing frame by frame to try to mm. figure out how they did it, because it looks so awesome. And so it captures the spirit of anime in a 3D way that I've never seen before. Mm. And obviously, you and I are both fans of of the character and of the master Hayao Miyazaki's um, entry into the Lupin franchise, the castle of Castelliagro. Am I saying mm-hmm. that right? Um I've, I'm great in at a curve here. Yes. Yeah, okay, thank figured, God. Yes. Thank God. Okay. Okay. Um, but yeah, it looks amazing. I can't wait to mm-hmm. see it. So we'll be, we'll, we'll be talking about that. 
Okay, and speaking of stuff that has kind of a Hayao Miyazaki vibe, DuckTales Season 3, we finally started getting some new episodes. Uh, you know, there, I, I do not, for the life of me, understand the Disney XD release pattern. That They're now releasing them on Monday nights. But we finally get a new episode. They're doing, I want to say, four for the month. Including the hour-long Halloween episode tomorrow night. And that's the other thing, that they're really leaning into the Halloween vibe. In fact, that supposedly will be sort of a horror scheme running through these next couple of episodes. But the first one that dropped was built around Penumbra, the the Moon Warrior. And I want to say it was Sam King, I think, wrote, directed, and deboarded the show, if not produced it. And it's just... It's a wonderful episode, particularly if, you, if you're a fan of Glomgold. Yes. Remember the, the Mickey wheel that DCA before it became the Pixar wheel? Yes. There's a riff on that in, in this one. And Mickey wheel had had a cannon. It's been so much fun. <laughs> and speaking of Mickey, uh, I, I want to ask how many of our listeners got to see the South Park pandemic episode drop this past week. I know, Drew, because of you are crazy, crazy, crazy busy. You haven't seen this yet. But South Park is a very, very interesting take on, on Mickey Mouse. And they've been doing this take on Disney's icon for about four and five years now, haven't they? Or Yeah, yeah. Do you remember the episode where they, they sort of brought in this version of Mickey where he basically abused the Jonas Brothers for daring to take off their purity rings? <laughs> it's a far more aggressive version of Mickey. And what, what makes it particularly interesting is that uh, there's a not family-friendly at all take on how the Wuhan virus actually made it out of Wuhan in, in this particular episode. And Mickey is at least tangentially involved. Yeah. Ava, don't listen to that one. Don't. <laughs> yes, don't. no. God, God, no. But yeah, the bulk of the episode touches on everything in the fine South Park tradition of you know sending up everything we're dealing with today, whether it's kids going back to school or defunding police departments. They really do just a, a dead-on job, and it ends with this wonderful, sincere message to the effect of we all just want to get back to our normal lives. And if that were the case, this is October now, so we would be knee-deep into Halloween Horror Nights at uh, you know, Universal. Drew suggested a, a great idea for a feature this week, which is to touch on a, another stop-motion project that Disney was doing and then tapped the brakes on. And that's the Shadow King. And when we get back from this break, we're going to talk about this movie. When did Shadow King first come on your radar? Well, I mean, it came on my radar when, you know, there was this big to-do about Henry Selleck coming back to Disney. It was in 2010. So this is right after Alice in Wonderland has become a big hit. And, yep. you know, they've committed to doing a Frankenweenie uh, stop motion movie at Disney, mm -hmm. oh, black and white. So mm -hmm. they're bringing Selleck back. And not only is he doing a new stop motion feature at a imprint of Pixar, a stop motion mm -hmm. imprint of Pixar, which is, you know, mind blowing enough, but that he was also going to direct a live action stop motion hybrid of the Graveyard book, which is maybe one of my favorite Neil Gaiman books mm -hmm. ever. I'm sure mm -hmm. that you and Alice both in, have enjoyed that. 
and that it was going to be like this big to do. Like he's back. He's he had just established Leica as a really amazing stop motion sort of tour de force, and now he's mm-hmm. at Disney and he's making original stuff. And I was thrilled. I was absolutely thrilled. And then I remember too when I was sort of reporting more news stuff that when they re- announced. You know, a lot of people have said it was a $50 million write-down, but it was more like $80 million write-down, and nobody could figure out what that was. Okay. I remember writing to, to Disney and saying, is this the Selleck thing? Is this what this write-down is? And it, it ended up being that's what it was. So wow. we need to go back to the beginning, though, of the stop motion. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. That, I, I mean, and that's the weird thing. Disney has this strange relationship with stop motion. I mean, I, even back in Walt's day, the company was doing stop motion. If you remember in 61, we had that Babes in Toyland and we had that March of the Wooden Soldiers bit that, and that's Exitensio, the gentleman who who wrote the, the script for Pirates of the Caribbean and actually wrote the lyrics for the Yoho song. And Bill Justice, who did a lot of the programming for theme park shows that you love, like Country Bear Jamboree. And there's lots of shots from the making of pirates where Bill is right there in the trench programming the figures, for example, for the auction scene. So this is the only sequence anyone remembers from Babes in Toyland, by the way. It, that movie, that yeah, movie is so antiseptic. Yeah. yeah. There's this famous story that they show Walt the finished version of Babes in Toyland and the lights come up and Walt sits there in the seats, you know, basically puts out the cigarette he's smoking. It's like, well, I guess Disney doesn't know how to make musicals. So then leaves the screening room and then, Three years later, we get Mary Poppins, which that's where you get to see the Babes in Toyland marching tin soldiers again, because X and uh, Bill, everything they learned from doing the March of the Wooden Soldiers sequence, they used in the, the scene where Jane and Michael's room makes itself up again. That's it for stop motion at Disney for years until October 1982, where we get Vincent, which is this teeny tiny little stop motion thing that Tim Burton and Rich Henrik, am I getting that name right? Yes, Rick Henrik. Yeah, yeah, he's, I mean, if you've seen any mm-hmm. Tim Burton movie, it's it's as much a Tim Burton movie as it is a Rick Henrik's movie. And he's produced a lot of things. He's done production mm-hmm. design. He did Dumbo most recently, so they're still mm-hmm. together. Yeah, and, uh, yeah, yeah. He's he's an amazing talent. He's mm-hmm. just wonderful. Yeah, this is when Tom Wilhite is the, is the head of production at Disney, and he recognizes that Tim Burton and Rick are, are huge talents, but they are just not operating this Disney box. And then there's what you know Tim and, and Rick are proposing doing. And in this same period, Tim writes the poem that Nightmare Before Christmas is based on, and he brings it to Tom, and it's like, what if we were to do this? As Disney's answer to Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. What if we were to do this as a stop-motion holiday special? And Tom is intrigued, but when he brings it to Ron Miller, Ron Miller is, like, repelled. You know, just like, right. And this is actually during the period where they give Tim, like, a dollar and a half to go shoot the original live-action featurette of, of Frank and Weenie. But once they see it, it's like, oh, get out of here. They let him go just after Frank and Weenie. In fact... I actually got to see Frank and Weenie when it was released to theaters in, in December of 84, where it seriously drew. It played on a double bill with Pinocchio. I mean, I think you are one of the few people to have seen it that way, because I don't think it it lasted that long. Oh, uh, no, no, Pinocchio. no. 
the only time I've ever seen that face, I mean, I made a point of turning around and looking at the rest of the audience while they're, you know, old Frankenweenie was, was unspooling. And the only other time I've seen those sorts of faces on parents with children sitting next to them was when the live action redo of Frankenweenie actually, did you get to do the press reading when they did it? At downtown Disney Anaheim? No, I was I was still in New York, so I just saw it at the wonderful Fifth Avenue Disney screening room, which I don't think Disney owns anymore, but was a really wonderful little room. Yeah, I love that. I love yeah. that. But this is when Disney is heavily courting the Disney moms. And I turn around, you know, midway through the film, and the expression of all the moms is sort of like this this vague distaste bordering on horror, because again, they're there with their kids watching this black and white film that's made for that subset of Disney fans who really love the classic universal horror movies. And it's just like, who exactly did you make this movie for? I will go to bat for that movie, but yeah. We really? Yeah, I think I really, what I thought was a stroke of genius was giving every kid a pet and then having them all go crazy at the end. I think that that is a level of... Very nearly Gremlins-esque <laughs> chaos that you don't see that often, Jim, in terms of widespread sort of creature-fueled destruction. Um, yeah, I really I really like that ending. To make that connection now, to, to point out the parallels with Gremlins, um, it's like, okay, I get it. It's been interesting for me in the last couple of years to watch all of this Gremlins love sort of bubble up. When that thing first opened in theaters, and it's like from Steven Spielberg, the same man who brought you E.T., to watch how audiences reacted to this weird, dark film. A movie that helped usher in the PG-13 rating, Jim. It did, no, that's it exactly. That's it exactly. So, no, all right, now now I got to circle back on Frankenweenie. Yeah. All right, so Burton is shown the door at Disney in late 1984, but the interesting thing is he actually uses Frankenweenie as sort of his calling card, the folks at Wonder Brothers look at it and it's like, hey, you know, we're looking to do this movie with Paul Rubens and would you be interested in, you know, directing Pee-wee's Big Adventure? And that gets it all started. Well, you're also missing a, a key thing. When he left, mm-hmm. he and Selleck formed a production company that was called Burton oh. Selleck Productions. And that's when, mm-hmm. around the same time Tim was getting these jobs, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Selleck was doing like the interstitials for MTV and the slow yes. bob in the lower dimension. Yes. So those were all Burton Selleck joints. Mm-hmm. So they they were still in the mix, is what I'm just trying. I'm just I just want to put that out. No, there no, 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 no. That that excellent point. Thank yeah. you for bringing that up. But anyway, Burton's career starts to catch fire during this period when you know Pee Wee comes out summer of '85, followed in March of '88 by Beetlejuice, and then of course the big one, June of '89, Batman. Never heard of it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In the, the tidal wave of that film success, Burton reaches out to Disney. And, you know, it's just the effect of, hey, you know, is there any way I could get back uh, Nightmare Before Christmas? You know, I, I would really like to do something with that. And Jeffrey Katzenberg, being Jeffrey Katzenberg, it's like, well, no, we won't give you, you know, we won't sell it back to you, but we will make it here with you. Is it Burton who then, who brings uh, Selleck in to do yes. that? So what happened was... Burton and Selleck Productions had sort of been inactive. Burton renames it Skellington Productions. There we go. And then he sells it to Disney. And Mm -hmm. with that comes Selleck. But, you know, I think that you and I have have talked about this on the show before, but had Katzenberg not made this deal, 
mm-hmm. with an outside company that they probably would not have had been so bold with Toy Story. No, you're exactly right. You know, the, the fact that, that they had made the deal with Burton, if there was a precedent, so they could then make the production deal with Pixar, which brings us to where we're at today. But when Nightmare Before Christmas comes out in October of 93, kind of a disappointment. You know, it cost $18 million to make and kind of a weird parallel to the Shadow King situation because weren't they making it up in San Francisco? Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it costs 18 million to make, only sells $50 million worth of tickets domestically. And so it's it's perceived as a disappointment. But again, Disney still wants to be working with Burton, still wants to be working with Selleck. And, uh, you know, so we get James and the Giant Peach, which comes out three years later in April. That actually costs $20 million more to make than uh, Nightmare, but only sells $28 million worth of tickets. So that one is, is actually written off as a failure. And unlike Ed Wood, it's actually not a great movie. <laughs> you know, there's a lot I actually like about James and the Giant Peach. I mean, I, I think Randy Newman's score is solid. That's the life for me. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. And they brought in Richard Dreyfuss yeah. very late to to re-record the centipede. I, who am I? Uh, I don't know. I, I've never I, heard this, that he was he replaced somebody. I, I think it's it's one of the the guys who's in my science project. Oh, really? Uh, yeah. Well, it wasn't Hopper, was it? No. All right. I'll, I'll have that for the next show, folks. Okay. But... Well, I also just wanted to point out that in uh, Beetlejuice, Pee-wee, Batman, and Ed Wood, there is stop-motion animation. Yep. So, yep. you know, th- yeah. this was a real... This was something that he was very connected to. And even... I don't know. We, we were talking about this, I think, maybe off-air, but... The Tim Burton exhibit, touring exhibit that was a few years ago. Yes. There mm-hmm. was that amazing test footage that you could see of the uh, stop motion uh, version of uh, Mars Attacks. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. That, when he was going the whole Ray Harryhausen route. Yes. Now you really are breaking my heart. <laughs> and, and more to the point, I mean, Burton kept his hand in that world. 2005, we got a corpse bride. Forty million to make, only sold fifty-three worth of tickets domestically. Beautiful, beautiful looking movie. Yeah, yeah, no, 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 great. And and, and in fact, I love stop motion. In fact, I'm probably one of the only people on the planet who likes Monkey Bone, the Henry Selleck half live action, half stop motion project. Oh God, <laughs> it has some wonderful stuff on the edges. You know, I don't know necessarily if. Brendan would, would, you know, has any affection for that movie. Yeah, you know, um, it seems like a movie that was just whittled down from a very expansive, elaborate take to something that was sort of half realized, and it, it just sucks to watch, and it's and it's just uh, it's awful. You know, you have like these amazingly elaborate stop motion characters walking next to somebody in a giant paper mache head. It's like what what's going on? So yeah. <laughs> Well, don't hold anything back. Drew. Tell us, <laughs> tell us how you really feel. So, but Nightmare comes out '93, kind of a disappointment, but then slowly begins to achieve cult status. And, and what really puts gas in the tank is is Haunted Mansion Holiday, which debuts at Disneyland back in October of 2001. And Selleck manages to recover from the real career hit. I mean, Monkey Bone crashed and burned. 
But he, as you mentioned, he ends up over at Leica. Well, you're missing a key part of this recovery process, Jim. Which, which is? is? In 2004, he mm-hmm. did the stop motion animation for The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou. That's For right. Wes Anderson. That was right. released by mm-hmm. Touchstone Pictures. So this was another Disney project that he, there we he go. did. And there I think at one point he was being courted to actually do the work on... Um, on Mr. Fox that Wes um, ended up directing himself. But I think that work on Steve Zissou is a key component to him sort of picking up steam again. By the way, did you see that, that there's a coffee table book coming out this fall for Wes Anderson that, that goes through his entire, entire filmography? Oh, really? I mean, I have the great, if you don't have the uh, Matt Zoller Seist book, it, mm-hmm. you should check that out. It's really great. And then he's done sort of subsequent installments for Grand Budapest and Isle of Dogs. So... Oh, it's it's okay. great. Yeah. I mean, maybe this new version combines those other two shorter volumes. Oh, the accidentally Wes Anderson. No, I have not seen this. Now I'll have to pick this up too, Jim. Jeez. Jeez, you're costing me money, Jim. Uh, I am so sorry. <laughs> okay. So Henry ends up over at Leica. Weirdly starts his, his sort of run there doing their first ever CG film, Moon Girl. It's a short. Gets released in 2005. You always have to watch these early... CG films and, and remember to reset your expectations for what they could do for animation back in 2005. Mm-hmm. It's charming because it has, it brings kind of a stop motion aesthetic to the CG world. Anyway, October, 2006, 13th anniversary of uh, nightmare. Disney takes the film, you know, does the whole stereographic reimagining and sends the 3d version out into theaters. And it does ridiculously well. So well that Disney decides, let's get back in the Tim Burton business. And I have to share a story I got from Don Hahn about how this happened. That Don flew over to London while Tim was filming Sweeney Todd, got him on the set, and made a pitch to him, you know, to the effect of, look, the Frank and Weenie short. There's a lot of meat left on the bone there. You know, that there's a whole world there to explore. And what if we were to do that the way you want it as a, a full length stop motion thing? And he's like, OK, I'm on board. And then but the other film they originally pitched him was Maleficent. Yeah, that to me is is one of the great what ifs. As soon as I heard of that, it was like, oh, I want to see some Tim Burton goons. Yeah. I want to see what he would have done with Maleficent. That's just right straight in his wheelhouse. And well, the other thing is that Alice in Wonderland was supposed to was supposed to have uh, stop motion animation as well. Was uh, it really? Yeah, if you go back and read the sort of initial description mm. of it, it's it's going to combine CGI with stop motion and 3D. And and you know, if you ever get a chance to talk to Tim Burton about his experience on Alice in Wonderland, I mean, it seemed to make his head spin. It mm. was so so hard to visualize and just, you know, having a giant green room and a, you know, some English grip with a tennis ball going, Oh, I'm a, I'm the dragon. I am or whatever, you know, it just sort of like, it made him nuts. So, you know, that's why I think that one more thing, like adding stop motion to that was not going to help anything. Jeez. I had not heard that. Yeah. But I've seen the shots of Maya, but they set up the moat, with the giant severed heads that she had to sort of use as rocks in the river to get over to the castle. Yes. That was a little strange. Yes. Speaking of strange, February 2009, Henry's first film for uh, Leica comes out, Coraline. 
It cost $15 million to make, only did $72 million stateside. But if you factor in the worldwide box office, it was actually the third highest grossing stop motion film in Hollywood history, behind Ardman's Wallace and Gromit, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, and you know, Ardman's uh, Ardman DreamWorks Chicken Run. And now we get to September 2009. It's the very first B23 Expo. And Dick Cook stands on stage and talks about this brand new effort that Disney's about to push out, Disney Double Dare. Now, you were there for that announcement, right? Or? No, I wasn't. This, I, this was, I was still a, a youngin, Jim, that 10 years okay. ago, you know. So I was, okay. I was not there yet. I mean, I remember that happening, and I was thrilled. But yeah. um, we're going to explore this, in, this moment in depth next, next episode always fascinated me because you know Guillermo came out and announces troll hunters and and the haunted mansion hello yeah yeah and and you know the whole notion of dick felt that this is one place that disney kind of touched on this i mean whether it's the scary old crone and snow white or demon on top of bald mountain but we never fully gone down the street and less than a week later after this announcement dick hook is out as the head of Disney City and, and Rich Ross, the guy behind the High School Musical franchise, is in. Smiling idiot Rich Ross, yeah. <laughs> Again, we're making friends left and right here on this show. Okay, so Tim Burton's Elsa Wonderland comes out March of 2010. Uh, smash hit, does a billion dollars worth of business worldwide. It does benefit from being the second 3D movie who arrive in theaters right after Avatar just sort of sets the world on fire. Yeah, I, th- I think it's a good movie, too. That's March 5th, when Alice opens in theaters. And then March 31st, less than four weeks later, here's the big announcement that, you know, Henry Selleck returns to Disney. And let me read how Variety put this. Uh, the Coraline director, who began his animation career at Disney in the, in the late 1970s, struck a long-term exclusive deal to make stop-motion features for Disney Pixar, as you mentioned, under the Pixar imprint. And that Disney animation topper John Lasseter's decision to bring Selleck into the Disney Pixar fold is another boost for the painstaking handcrafted technique, while representing an expansion beyond the strictly computer-animated take of the company. And they go on to say that, you know, this means that Henry's working with old friends of the company like, uh, you know, Brad Bird, and then, finally, in 2011, we get information that the very first Henry Sully project is officially greenlit. Now, I know you mentioned the Graveyard Stories, the Graveyard Book. The Graveyard Book, yeah, which if you've never read, perfect mm-hmm. Halloween reading, by the way. It is sort of mm-hmm. Neil Gaiman's version of the Jungle Book, but set in a mm-hmm. graveyard um, with all these fantastic creature vampires and ghosts and all these things. So, yeah, he was supposed mm-hmm. to... And, you know, they were so bullish about him coming back. They were they were like, he's going to start on that immediately after mm-hmm. the first feature, which at the time was called Shade Maker. And then there was uh, eventually called the Shadow King. OK, so do you want to read the log line? Oh, sure. Shall... OK. Uh, the Shadow King is a deliciously magical tale about nine year old New York orphan Hap who hides his fantastically weird hands with long fingers from a cruel world. But when a living shadow girl teaches him to make amazing hand shadows that come to life, his hands become incredible weapons in a shadow war against a ravenous monster bent on killing Hap's brother Richard and ultimately destroying New York. 
it's one thing to read a log line. It's another thing, and in fact, this is this is why we went down this rabbit hole when when Drew proposed we should talk about the Shadow King because he just casually mentions, oh, by the way, the, the, you know, the, this is what like six minutes of this movie online. Yeah, this was the stuff they were prepping to show Disney, or I mean, that was the me? footage that they took to the European film market, Jim. Wow. After the movie was. Uh was mm-hmm. shut down but we have to actually we should talk for a second if i could mm-hmm. about who sure. was working on this movie production designed by uh, lou romano from pixar from pixar yeah. one of mm-hmm. bird's loyalist lieutenants who mm-hmm. worked on you know and he voices a character in in ratatouille he mm-hmm. worked on the incredibles and just a huge talent tony fucili was was also involved did you know that jim i mean mm-hmm. legendary Guy who and one of the guys that really transitioned seamlessly from hand drawn to computer animation, and now he's kind of a he's kind of a gatekeeper for Pixar. I don't know if you've ever seen his drawings that he does over the the test animation. Oh yes, you yes, know he, he's, he's set up this whole system where they they feed the footage through this computer and and Tony will actually draw lines over the animation and say, this could be more exaggerated, emphasize mm-hmm. the squash and stretch here. I mean, he is, as far as I'm concerned, he's a, like a living legend in, in animation and one of the nicest guys. Uh, Rodrigo Blas, who mm-hmm. went on to be instrumental in Troll Hunters, going back for a second to Disney Double Dare You, was on this. And it was co-directed by Eric Leighton who has had a long history no. with Disney and uh, directed Dinosaur. I was about to yeah. say, wow. I mean, so you're talking about obviously an A-team group of people. Yes. This is where the story kind of gets fuzzy because there's a lot of outside factors. They set up this unit in San Francisco. There's 150 people up there working on this film um, that, again, Disney had so you know trumpeted in the trades and, you know, oh, my God, you know, Henry Selick is back at Disney. It was literally, Jim, like three doors down from Pixar. Like they would walk there and walk back. I mean, it was, it was sad. But anyway, go ahead. Continue. The, okay. Continue the All right. So March of 2012, John Carter opens in theaters. And I get Drew and I have alluded to on, on earlier shows about how in a different world, John Carter would have been Pixar's first live action film. In fact, Drew, you've told the stories about what the first script reads for it, the first table reads were actually at the Emeryville campus. Oh, yeah. I I talked to somebody who pre-production, I think for like Mm -hmm. six months, was in Pixar. It it just took over an entire wing. There were models made. Mm -hmm. I mean, John Carter is is technically the first live action Pixar movie. It just was released under the Disney umbrella. Yes. Yeah, that call to move it to the Disney umbrella was made by John Lasseter, who, above all costs, wanted to protect Pixar's, at that point, unended streak of solid box office successes. So that movie comes out and does not do the business Disney had expected. The company takes a, almost immediately takes a $200 million write down on the production cost, but I want to say it was Monday morning after uh, John Carter came out and Bob Iger comes out and talks about we as a company, we made this. So, so we, you know, we, we accept the blame for it underperforming. At the and reading between the lines here, it's like, 
we would really like Andrew Stanton to go back to Pixar and get to work on the Nemo sequel immediately. You know, we don't want him getting upset and leaving the company and God help us go to work for DreamWorks. But Rich Ross evidently didn't handle this a particularly smart way. I guess there were some words to the effect of the people at Pixar pushed hard to get this movie made and they should accept some of the blame. And I mean, it, I, I, w- I actually agree with... I agree that it was it was everybody's screw up. I mean, I don't think a movie has been as poorly marketed before oh, or no. since since John no. Carter. No, and in fact, it's so interesting when you talk with the the marketing people at Disney who got overruled by Andrew Stanton and the folks at Pixar, you know, about how they wanted to do the campaign. You and I could go down that rat hole forever, but yes. John Carter comes out in March of that year by April, late April, that same year, Rich Ross is forced out as the head of Disney Studios and Alan Horn is brought in. And what's interesting about Alan was he was sort of sunsetted at Warner Brothers. He was. He was. After spearheading (laughs) the Harry Potter movies, they were like, you're too old. Go home. So Alan Horn is old as hell. Uh, Still is. Still is. But uh, there's something genuinely sweet, especially watching what's recently happened with Warner Brothers management. The fact that you force this guy out of the building and he's in retirement for like a year, year and a half before Iger persuades him to come over to Disney. And then you know, Disney has this amazing run up until recently, of course. Yes, you, do, you won't find Alan Horn in any sex scandals with autistic starlets. I'll tell you that, Jim. <laughs> wow. Well, that, 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 that's something you want to put on the resume. <laughs> <You> know, right? <laughs> Right there with, you know, type 160 words a minute. So, okay. <laughs> Alan comes through the door in late April. And by August of 2012, we get the announcement about Disney is shutting down production of Shadow King. And in fact, from a creative and scheduling standpoint, the film wasn't where it needed to be to meet its planned release date, which, by the way, was October of the following year. Yeah, when has that ever stopped any Disney movie before, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. So let me float what I have heard about what happened. And basically, again, Alan comes through the door. And as the new studio head at Disney, it's like, show me everything. Show me everything that's in the work. Give me the scripts for, for what's about to go. Show me the work in progress footage of everything. And he gets to see the, at this point, nearly finished Frankenweenie. And it's like, dear God, who is this movie supposed to be for? You know, they mentioned, oh, by the way, you got another one, <laughs> you know, coming out next year, you know, in right. the same window of time. And it's like, oh, no, 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 we're not going to do that. And Alan, one of the first decisions, it's like, look, we've thrown 50 million. So you have heard as high as 80 million. 80, yeah. Yeah. Oof. I mean, they were employing 100, they employed 150 people for mm-hmm. three years. I mean, that's mm-hmm. got to not be cheap. But at the time, I remember reaching out to people and just saying that, you know, Selleck is not the easiest person to work with. And he mm-hmm. hated mm-hmm. getting notes from the brain trust at Pixar. Mm-hmm. So Shadow King, like every Pixar movie, was being screened and vetted by the Brain Trust, a group of filmmakers at Pixar Mm -hmm. that included his old buddy Brad Bird and John Lasseter. So maybe he was excited to be working with them again, but Mm -hmm. maybe not as excited to be working for them. And I found a later interview where he talks about 
how when his vision is diluted by a sort of a committee interest that it just doesn't work. And he said that uh, that was his big takeaway from the project, although he tried to shop it around. He did. He did. But again, you know, thank you so much Drew, for, for letting me know about footage that's online because it is. I mean, it's it's beautiful stuff, but it's also raw. I mean, you know, for example, what I love about it, if you actually watch the footage closely, you can actually see that break on the bridge of the nose and where they I swap up. Yeah. Pop out the mouth shape. So that's, you know, that's how early this stuff is. And I hate to say it, Alan Horn wasn't necessarily wrong when it came to Frankenweenie. I mean, that cost $39 million for the studio to make. It only sells $35 million worth of tickets domestically. But now, now that you mentioned Gremlins, now I got to go back and look at it again. Well, I also you know? just appreciate, I mean, it is a black and white stop motion mm-hmm. movie. I mean, there was no concession to make it any kind of mainstream effort at all. Mm. And I I appreciate that. You will never, in Alan Horn's Disney, you will never see something that bizarre coming out. That said, what I find fascinating about Disney's relationship with Tim Burton is that, again, you have the cycle of, we work together, I I can't work with you anymore, go away. You know, come back, work for us, go away. It's a very broke back mountain, you know, I wish I could quit you, you know, and so that's how we end up with last year's Dumbo. I honestly don't understand who that movie is aimed at. I mean, I love the design. I love the fact that Michael Keaton is basically playing the evil Walt Disney. As somebody who's watched way too much much television and film, I appreciate it. But at the same time, it's like, who was supposed to buy tickets for this? Yeah. I, I like it, too. I think it's one of the more successful uh, live-action adaptations. Let's get ready to rumble guy aside. But, uh, <laughs> yes. Okay. again, I, I appreciated the, the Tim Burton, Rick Heinrichs lunacy mm-hmm. of it, especially, you're right, when they get to the kind of, like, World's Fair run amok um, stuff. Yeah. But, yeah. And I also visited the set, which was very cool. So I got oh. to I got to see Casey Jr. IRL, which was very uh, exciting. Yeah. Okay. Now I gotta go revisit that one too. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, that is basically the story of Shadow King. But Drew discovered this, so go online, take a look at it, folks. If you, you if you head to YouTube and and type in the Shadow King, you get. The, I think it's broken up into six different pieces. But well, you get t- type in Shadow King Henry Selick because if you don't, you're just gonna watch a video, a bunch of videos about that FX show Legion that was from a couple oh. years ago. Okay, never mind. Yeah, so don't, okay, so yes. Yeah, so Shadow Henry King, Selig. Henry Selleck. Yeah, it's six, six parts. It's more footage than you ever would have thought was actually finished. It's mm-hmm. beautiful. Um, the kids' fingers are way creepier than you could have oh, ever imagined. Yeah, um, yeah. As soon as I saw that, it was like, wow. Yeah, so. I mean, it's because he doesn't actually control his fingers. They're sort of like, they're sort of stiff noodles, and it's mm-hmm. really unsettling. <laughs> In, in a great way, in a great way. But, but no, seriously, check it out. And next time around, folks, we're going to finally do that deep dive on Disney Double Dare. Yeah. I actually asked him about it at one point. So Did you really? Yeah, oh, yeah. Okay. Then, yeah. All right. Cannot wait. All right. That's our next show, folks. But that's going to be next week. And if you, you, you need something to take a look at between now and then, we've got. And there's some wonderful stuff going on at Light the Fuse. Can you can you talk about what's up over oh, there? Oh yeah, well this week we talked to Barbara Bain, amazingly. No, 
yeah. really? Yeah. Oh, oh my God. 89 you know. years old, sharp as a tack, had some mm-hmm. really inspiring things to say. And mm-hmm. then the day after we talked to her, we talked to Leslie Ann Warren, who was in oh, uh, no. season five. Yeah. So we got wow. some great, we got some great Victor Victoria stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, I, of course, had to ask her about Color of Night, the infamous and Disney produced mm-hmm. uh, erotic thriller from the 90s that she was in. <laughs> Just the other day, I was watching, there, there was a, a YouTube video of her from the redo of Cinderella that they did on CBS. Yes. Yeah. I want to say she did that in the same window of time as uh, Happiest Billionaire. Yeah. Yeah. And I think she, she might have even done, I think she came back and did it on Broadway, too, at some point. Um, but wow. yeah, but she was really fantastic as well. And I also wanted to say that, that tomorrow, the day after this recording, we just finished mm. this recording, the 100 greatest moments in animation is going up on Vulture, uh, the mm. New York magazine blog. And yours truly contributed a bunch of capsules, mostly about classic age Disney stuff. So check it out, Jim. Okay. Well, no, we'll definitely have to check that out. Holy yeah. cow. Yeah. All right. But when you're not enjoying... Barbara Bain and Leslie Ann Warren or the, this great piece over at Vulture. You got a little free time. Come over to Jim Hill Media. Uh, we got uh, Disney Dish with Lentesto. We got uh, Universal Joint with Dustin Fuse. Just did a new episode of that yesterday. Uh, Going to be doing a brand new episode of Marvelous Disney with Aaron Adams. Did a looking at Lucasfilm just recently with your buddy Dan Z. Oh, God. Uh, <laughs> He says hello. <laughs> uh, and I'm supposedly doing a brand new I Want That with uh, Shelly Valladolid on Tuesday. So we got a lot of stuff coming on this side of the fence, folks. But uh, if you could do your and I a favor, if you could head over to iTunes and rate and recommend not only Like the Fuse, also uh, Fine Tuning. If you could head over to Bandcamp and subscribe, that's helpful. And again, as always, Drew, so enjoy following you on social media. And where might they find you? Oh, that is uh, Drew Tailored, like a tailored suit on mm. Instagram and Twitter. So, mm. yeah, come on okay. by. All right. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram as Jim Hill Media and on Facebook at JimHillMediaNews.com. And we'll have a brand new fine tuning next week. <laughs>